So we've been in a series called You Asked For It. And basically what we did on Easter is we handed out a survey. And we had about, I think it was about 15 to 20 different topics. And topics that you said that you wanted to hear about. And basically we tallied up the top four topics. And those have been the sermons for the past um, three weeks. And this will conclude our fourth week. So basically if you've missed the series and you want to go back, you can always go to oscconnect.com and listen to any of them. But the past three weeks, we've talked about um, some pretty cool things. The first one, we talked about how to hear God and discern his will for your life. Um, The second week, we talked about stress, how to live with margin in your life. And then uh, last week, we actually talked about having a marriage that lasts, which my wife did an incredible job last week. How many of you guys enjoyed that? Um, So we talked about marriage. And then this week is a peculiar topic. I I really didn't think that it would show up, and I didn't think that it would... um, get on the list. And I'll be honest, when I saw it, I was kind of like, dang. (laughs) Um, So anyway, this week is uh, spiritual warfare. Um, So some of you, this is my, this is my question that I had. I I think some of us, when we checked off that box, some of us were probably thinking down two different lanes. So maybe when some of you check it off, you're thinking about some mystical, crazy uh, world. And then maybe some of you are thinking about this war, this fight. So what I want to do this morning is to try to answer kind of both of those questions um, together. Because I think when most of us checked that off, there was probably a few different questions that we're asking about it. Now, this topic is a little diff- bit different than all the three because it wasn't a question saying, hey, I've got stress. What do I do with it? What does the Bible say about it? I think this one was more, what is spiritual warfare? Is it real? Is it something that really goes on? And if it is, how do I handle it and how do I deal with it? And so this morning... I'm going to try my best to um, point you to the fact that there is a very real spiritual world. There is a real thing such as uh, Satan, uh, demons, um, angels, uh, God, Jesus, all these things. These things are all real. Maybe we can't see them, but the scripture is abundantly clear that they do exist. There's actually a story in uh, 2 Kings chapter 6. Um, where Elisha, or the king, they, they have this Syrian king that is about to invade Israel. He wants to take them all out, and um, Israel does not have the amount of army to fight the Syrian king and his whole army. And uh, they're basically on this mountaintop, cut a long story short, freaking out. What are we going to do? Um, Elisha's servant is freaking out. Hey, we do not have enough men to, uh, to fight these people. And uh, Elisha prays to God. He says, God, open my servant's eyes. And it says when his eyes were opened that there were chariots of fire and all these things around him, this very real spiritual world that was going to fight this war and this battle for them. Now, the Bible never gives too much attention to, like, I know that some, some people in here, they get all mystical about it, and they get really into the, the spiritual world, and they try to discover it and figure out what it's really all about. And there are some details that the Bible gives, but there are not a whole lot. Rather, the Bible is actually very practical with a lot of things. It teaches us how to live and how we should live our lives and how we should love one another and what we should do to love our neighbor and all those things. But if you have a Bible, turn with me to Ephesians uh, chapter 6, verse 10. And uh, we're about to read a passage where Paul is going to let us know that, hey, there is this very real spiritual world out there. And if we're not cautious, um, it is something that we can fall victim to in a bad way. So Ephesians uh, 6, verse 10, and it says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes. Remember, if you have a highlighter, pen, whatever, underline that word, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So this war that we're in is not against our brother. It's not against our sister, our neighbor, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Basically, Paul ends the letter of Ephesians by reminding us that every single day we're waking up to a fight, to a war. Um, I, I was explaining this to some of our guys at our men's Bible study this week on Friday, and I said, it's crazy how you can have this incredible moment with God. So maybe you wake up one morning, you put on some worship music, or you're praying, or whatever it is, and then 30 minutes later, after you've had this incredible moment with God, it's like all of a sudden, out of nowhere, these horrendous just thoughts enter into your mind. You guys ever have that happen where you just, man, you have this incredible time, you have this great moment with Jesus, or this just, and whatever, you're spending time with Jesus, and then all of a sudden it just hits you, and you, you have no idea where it came from. But whether you want to recognize it or not, if we're not fighting against these spiritual forces, sooner or later we're going to fall subject to them. So, first we've got to answer the question simply, what is spiritual warfare? What the heck is spiritual warfare? Because it's not like really a word that we use anymore. Like, yeah, man, dude, I was just in like warfare yesterday. Like nobody uses that word anymore. It's kind of like an old word. So, so what is it? So I believe um, that there's two categories to, or mostly what you are probably going to fall into when you think of the uh, term spiritual warfare. The first category is this. These are the people that give the enemy too much credit for the bad stuff that happens in their life. Um, these are the people, the first category would be, they, they, these are the people that they consistently blame Satan for the bad things in their life. So maybe they had something go wrong, maybe their health took a, a turn for the worse, or maybe they lost a friendship, or maybe they fell into sin, and it's never their fault. It's always like, man, it's Satan's fault. He, he made me do it. Um, these are the people, let me give you an example. So maybe you go to Walmart. Um, and you're grocery shopping, and you're in one aisle, and you see an empty parking spot, and you're like, yes, score, close, it's raining, I want to try to get this spot. So you pull around, and like out of nowhere, somebody just cuts you off and pulls into that spot, and these are people like, oh my God, Satan, he's just attacking me today. No, actually, somebody just was rude and stole your parking spot. It had nothing to do with the enemy, okay? It had nothing to do with Satan, but there is an upside to this people group. There is an upside to this first category is that a lot of times they're very, they're very aware of the spiritual world. Now, the downside of this category is they believe that the enemy has a whole lot more power than he actually does. So that's the first category. Second category is this. These are people who are just simply indifferent to the schemes of the enemy. This would probably be the category if I'm not careful that I can fall into. You just kind of like, yeah, I kind of, if somebody would ask you the question, do you believe in the devil? Oh, of course I do. Do you believe in demons? Yes, of course I do. But you don't live your life very aware that there is an enemy, that there is an evil, that there isn't darkness that wants to destroy you. Um, you don't spend a lot of time thinking about that. Um, so in, instead, you tend to just kind of coast. We've talked about this before where you just kind of, have this relationship with Jesus, and then it kind of slowly begins to drift. And here's what I found. As soon as you begin to drift, and as soon as you begin to coast, 
like the, that small thought that used to be very small in your mind begins to begin it begins to become bigger and bigger and bigger and something that ultimately starts to take over your life. And here's the thing. I believe that both of these extremes are wrong and unbiblical, and let me explain why. If you love Jesus, if you are a child of God, there is no need for you to fear the enemy. There is no need for you to fear the enemy because the power that lives in you is greater than any devil or demon that could ever attack you. But at the same time, there is a very real enemy that wants to destroy your life. So here's what I want to do. All that set up to set up two different things that I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about three things that the Bible says that Satan is and three things the Bible says that he is not. Okay, so number one, number one, Satan is brilliant. He is brilliant. I was reading in Genesis earlier this week, and I saw something that I never saw before. But I want you to imagine this. Okay, so God creates the world. He places uh, man and woman into this garden, and it is absolutely perfect. Okay, perfect, like naked and unashamed, perfect, okay? So they're in this garden. They have never tasted the stain of guilt. They have never tasted the stain of sin. They have never dealt with remorse. They have never dealt with anything. These are what we would call unfallen minds. They've never sinned. They literally got to wake up in the morning and like walk with Jesus, And so a lot of times when we read Genesis, we see Adam and Eve as, man, they're stupid, right? Like, are you serious? You were deceived by a cunning little serpent? Like, if I was in the garden, I definitely wouldn't be deceived by a serpent. We we, kind of equate Adam and Eve as like, how could you do this? How could you screw up all of of humanity for the sake of biting a simple fruit? And here's what I want you to realize. The enemy is a whole lot more brilliant than most of us give him credit for. If he could deceive unfallen minds, two people that have never fallen into sin before, he's got to be pretty smart. So these are two people like, they didn't come to church and hear Madeline and the band worship. Okay, like these were two people like, God was right there and they got to look at him face to face and worship him right there. If they had a question, they could walk with God. Like, hey God, they probably knew more things about the universe than we could ever know. They were very smart. So look at it this way. If Satan had the ability to deceive unfallen minds, what do you think he could do to fallen minds? What do you, what do you think that he could do with people that, man, we've tasted guilt, right? We've, we've tasted sin. We've tasted all these things. We know what it's like. So if he can just play on those things, he can get you. He's brilliant. He's smart. He knows what he's doing. Let me give you um, an example of this, simply of what Satan is kind of like in Scripture. And before I read this passage, you don't have to turn there or be on the screens in 1 Corinthians. I want to give you a little bit of context. So there is this man in the Corinthian church who basically um, is unrepentant about having an affair on his wife. Okay? So basically, uh, the church finds out about this. They call the sin out and say, hey, man, you need to repent of this. And he's basically saying, I, I, I'm not going to. I'm just not going to repent. I'm enjoying my life right now, and you guys can't tell me anything. So this is what Paul writes for the church to do to this guy, okay? Here it is. 
It says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, in my spirit is present. So this is what we're doing now. This is church. With the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. Listen to this. For the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So here's what's going on. You have a guy who's unrepentant about his sin, and this is what Paul says. You know what? He doesn't want to repent. You guys have done everything. You've prayed with him. You've pointed out his sin. He does not want to repent. So here's what you do. Remove him from the spiritual covering and protection of the church. Remove him from the family of the church and send him into the world and let Satan devour him. That's scary stuff. Let Satan pull this man apart in hopes that if this man hits rock bottom that he'll realize how good he had it and how much these people actually loved him. And so that if Satan can pull him apart and destroy his flesh, then maybe, just maybe, he'll hit rock bottom and cry out to God. And God will save his soul. So here's the thing that we realize in Scripture is we see that Satan has the ability to, to affect our physical body. His ability to affect our mental body, our emotional body, all of these things. So number one, Satan is brilliant. Number two, Satan is very determined. Satan is determined. Now, let me give this a little context first. When I'm saying the word Satan, I'm not necessarily talking about the devil himself, okay? I am, but I'm not, if that makes any sense. They're like the demons, the forces of darkness. And I'm going to explain this in a minute, um, but I just feel like I need to throw that out there. So number two, Satan is determined. First Peter, this is First Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, your enemy, Satan, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So there are these evil forces, this spiritual world that prowls around looking for a weak human to devour, to prey on. My dad told me a story a few years ago. My dad's been to South Africa many times. And uh, a few years ago, he had the opportunity to go on a safari hunt. And uh, he had the opportunity to hunt a lion. And um, so he never killed one. But uh, he had a friend that went with him on the trip, and he had the same opportunity to hunt a lion. And so he's with this guide. This guide in South Africa is, like, touring them around. They're kind of tracking this lion. And all of a sudden, they said they, they come over these bushes, and they see the lion. And so the guide is telling this guy, he says, hey, man, get, get your gun ready. Get ready. And you imagine at that moment when you see a lion face, your blood is pumping your adrenaline is rushing. You're like, dude, if I don't shoot this lion, if I don't kill this thing, this thing is coming for me, okay? So the, the guides in South Africa, because they do this, um, they have one guy sh- propped up with a gun, the guy that paid to shoot this lion, and then they have guys that are usually ready to shoot it just in case he misses. And so the guy is so nervous, he fires off a shot, hits the lion, and he's thinking, man, I killed this thing. The lion goes down. And all of a sudden, they're walking towards the lion, and the lion stands up and takes off. And so the guide has this brilliant idea, let's track him. Which at this point, I'd be like, I'm good. (laughs) Like, I'm good. This dude's still alive. I'm good. Um, So they track the lion, and they said about an hour in, after they've been following the blood trails and all this stuff, um, they kind of lose the track. And, and, And so all of a sudden, the guide says, stop. And they realize that in their footprints that they've been tracking this lion, that the lion had been stepping on top of their foot tracks. 
And they said that they turn around and this lion is no more than about five feet from them. Somebody's so scared hearing this story. Um, Five feet from them. And they turn around and the guide has just a reaction because he does this thing, pulls out his pistol, shoots the lion dead. Now, why do I tell the story? The more, when I heard the story, my dad told me this the first time. I thought it was so interesting because the men were no longer hunting the lion. The wounded lion is now hunting the men. And here's the deal. Satan and the enemy is one very wounded soul because Jesus delivered him one mortal wound on the cross. Meaning that there is nothing that Satan can do to ever win. Ever. Like, there's nothing he can do to ever defeat Jesus. You know, you see all these paintings, like this epic battle between good and evil. I mean, if God really wanted to, he'd snap and it'd all be done. It would all be done. So, So Satan is just this wounded soul. And here's what he does. He's looking around for other wounded people to pull your eyes off of Jesus. So, man, the, the moment that you begin to coast, the moment that you begin to say, you know what, I don't need to fight, I don't need to pray, I don't need to go to church, I don't need any of these things, it's just a relationship between me and Jesus. No longer are you hunting after Jesus and experiencing things like you should. All of a sudden, the enemy is prowling and hunting you. There is this very real enemy that wants to steal things from us, wants to kill us. So here's what Peter is saying. He's saying, wake up and make sure that you are not the one that is unknowingly being hunted. Number three. So number one, Satan is brilliant. Number two, Satan is determined. And number three, Satan is calculating. He's calculating. In other words, he's not random. He's not random. Satan is strategically thinking of ways to destroy you. Think about it. In Genesis 3, God calls Satan the most crafty in all of creation. In all of creation. Ephesians 6, 10, what we just read says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to what? Stand against the schemes, plans. So, So here's the deal. If you're serving Jesus... You love Jesus. You have a relationship with Jesus. And there are these thoughts that enter into your mind that you know that you should be renewing them, that you know that you should suppress them. You know that you should deal with them. You know that you should confess them. You know that you should repent of them. Whatever the scenario may be, if you do not, that's his plan to destroy you. That is his plan to destroy you. He has a plan. He can, if he can, Satan is never just like, hey, here's the, pro, here's, the, here's the temptation, just take it. You never, I tell this all the time, but you never have a man that just comes home to his wife and is like, uh, had an affair. It doesn't, it doesn't happen. It's this slow burn, this slow temptation over time. He didn't suppress, he didn't give those thoughts to Jesus. Over time, he began to isolate himself and thinks, I don't need anybody else. I can handle this on my own. It's a slow burn. Satan is calculating. He's thinking about ways to constantly take you out. I want to point you to a story in Scripture of Satan's very specific plan for Peter. Um, in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, this is Jesus talking to Peter right before um, he's about to ascend into heaven. And he says, Peter, he said, listen, behold, 
Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. I have no idea what that means, but it sounds really bad. I'm kidding. I know what it means. Sift you like wheat means basically the enemy, Peter, the enemy wants to pull you apart. He wants to destroy you. He wants to take you out. And then Jesus, can, this, I've always loved this part of it. So Jesus reveals the horrible plan the enemy has for Peter. And then he goes, oh, by the way, Jesus, but I, Jesus, have pleaded in prayer for you. That's a good thing to have, right? Like Jesus praying for you. It says, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented, so Jesus is just already acknowledging, oh, by the way, you are going to fail. By the way, I am going to give Satan permission to sift you like wheat. And then he says, but when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said, Lord, I am ready to go to, to prison with you and even die with you. But Jesus said, Peter, let me tell you something. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will de- deny me three times that you even know me. So Satan had a very specific plan for Peter. And he denied Jesus. Why? Because ultimately, Peter is the one that Jesus looks at and he says, hey, upon this rock, I'm going to build and establish my church. Peter's essentially one of the first pastors in church history. You, you don't think that Satan had a very specific plan to take him out? And listen, maybe your journey is just a little different. Um, men, we, we talked about it a little bit last week. Like, maybe you know that one of the greatest things that it it affects you internally as your marriage. Do you actually truly believe that the enemy does not have a plan to destroy it and pull you apart? Like he has a specific plan to push you away. He has a specific plan for you to stay bitter. He has a specific plan for you to not forgive. Satan is calculating. Okay, so those are three things that Satan is. He's brilliant. He's determined, and he's calculating. So now I want to give you three things that he's not, okay? Number one, Satan is not God's equal. He is not God's equal. Satan is a fallen angel that was created by God. Okay? So let me give you a few things. God is omnipotent, meaning he's all-powerful. He possesses all the power in the universe. Satan is not. Okay, Satan's power is actually very limited, um, and I'll explain that in a moment. God is omnipresent, meaning God is absolutely everywhere, all at once. Space and time, this is, this is hard to wrap your mind around, but God does not operate in time. Okay, God is absolutely everywhere at once. He's here with us right now, and he's here with the children in the slums of Africa. God is absolutely Everywhere. Satan is not omnipresent. There are only a few times in Scripture that Satan is personally attacking someone. So we see in the examples of Jesus, you know, the 40 days when he's fasting. We see in Peter. We see in the story of Job. We see in the story of Judas. I think there's another one in the story of Ananias. So Satan is personally attacking those people. So here's the deal. Most of the time that you're being attacked, by spiritual forces, it's never Satan, okay? It, Satan is usually not personally attacking you because he's not omnipresent and he can't be everywhere all at once. So if somebody comes to you or you have a friend that says, man, Satan, man, he just personally attacked me today. You can look at them and say, actually, you're probably not that important. He probably didn't attack you. Don't say that. It's not a good response. But 
Satan cannot be everywhere. If he's attacking you, it's probably some demon or some power of darkness or whatever it may be. A lot of times, let me just throw this out there as a little caveat. Uh, Satan actually can just leave you alone. The demons can just leave you alone because we live in a fallen world and there's evil everywhere. And all we have to do is give in to our own desires and our own flesh and what we want. And that's enough. Satan doesn't have to do anything. Um, God is omniscient, meaning he knows everything. He knows everything. Satan does not. Satan doesn't know the future. He doesn't know what's going to happen. Satan doesn't know any of this. God is sovereign, meaning God is actually in control of everything. Like even, the Bible says, even the hairs on your head. That's crazy. He knows how many, like, little grains of sand sit in the ocean. He's in control of everything. The universe belongs to God, not Satan. I want you to look at it this way. Satan's power is like a drop of rain in the Pacific Ocean compared to the power of Jesus. It's like a drop of rain in, this, in the Pacific Ocean. Okay? Yes, he's a powerful being, but compared to the power of God, he is nothing. Absolutely nothing. Number two, this is a good one and a bad one. Okay? And this... I thought really hard about saying this one because it can open up this theological kind of thing where you're gonna, it's going to leave you with some questions and that's going to be a whole other sermon, okay? So I can't give you the, the complete answer to this. If you want to know it, come to the next step, I'll tell you. Um, <laughs> or ask me after service or come to the next step and I'll tell you. Number two, this is going to sound confusing at first, okay? Number two, Satan is not in control of his own actions, Satan is not in control of his own actions. I know it's confusing. God is actually in control of Satan's actions, and we see this in the book of Job. Now, I'm not saying that God is responsible for evil and bad. Okay, he's, Satan operates in a parameter, and he only can do what God allows him to do. Look at this, Job uh, chapter 1. It says, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, For where have, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down. So the dude's basically Roman. He's looking for somebody to pick apart. And this is what happens. And the Lord said to Satan, I, I, this part has always confused me. Listen to this. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Hey, you want, you want to pull somebody apart? You, you, you want to you you deal with something? Hey, have you considered Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from all evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has and on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and have increased in land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So you can take everything away from him, just don't kill him. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So, so here's the deal. We see this in two different scenarios in the Bible. Okay, remember Peter. He's going to sift you like wheat. Hey, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. 
Satan has to ask God for permission. Now, I know this could lead into some other things, and, and yet again, this is a whole uh, other topic or another sermon that, that we could go into. But here's the deal. Meaning, long story short, Satan's power is limited. Okay, he does not possess the power that God has. God gives Satan permission to attack Job, but he says, here's the parameters. Here's the parameters. We see it with Peter, we see it with Job. What this says is there's nothing that can happen to a child of God without his permission. Nothing. Nothing. Number three. Number three. Satan is ultimately not the cause of our sin. Satan is ultimately not the cause of our sin. And I'll prove this to you in James chapter 1, verse 13 through 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desire. And watch this. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, brings forth death. So here's the deal. Desire can be translated, can be looked at as like a temptation. So man, you want something. You want to do something that you know is wrong. But you have that moment, you know, when you're like, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. You fight it. Maybe you fight it for a few days. You fight it for a few weeks. And you finally have that one kind of moment where it's just kind of like this, I don't care moment. So it's like desire, desire. And then it says when desire kind of births and it blossoms and it blooms, what, is it, what happens? It, you give in to sin. You give in to sin. James is telling us that our worst enemy is not Satan. It's our own flesh and our own desires. It's our own flesh and it's our own desires. Here's the truth. You don't sin because of Satan. You sin because you want to. (laughs) You sin because you wanted to. You wanted to. Most of us are simply not a victim of some kind of satanic attack or demonic attack. You sin because when you peel back the layers of your heart, you truly desire evil. And that's the thing that we really need to wrestle with. That's the thing that we really need. God, why do I have these desires? Why do I wrestle with these things? And those are the things that we lay before God and say, God, help me with this. So, now that you know what Satan is and what he is not, I want to give you a few practical applications. Okay? So, now that we are aware that there is this spiritual world, there is this this. Um, war that is going on all around us. I want to give you three things. Number one, we must live in wartime mentality, not a peacetime mentality. We've got to live in a wartime mentality and not a peacetime mentality. We're in a fight. We're in a battle. If you notice the language in Ephesians earlier as I read, it's language that is saying, hey, put on the armor. Like, defend yourself. Get ready He's not telling you to go to battle. He's not telling you to fight. He's just saying, hey, protect yourself. Get ready. Put on your armor. Too many of us believe that once we follow Jesus that it's going to be easy. Let me just do this real quick. And I don't don't normally talk about stuff because I don't usually believe that the stage is something um, where we should talk about this kind of stuff. But it has become so prevalent where it's almost necessary to talk about it up here. 
there is this whole idea within Christianity now called um, the prosperity theology or the prosperity gospel, meaning that if you're going to serve Jesus, and as soon as you make a decision to serve Jesus, and as soon as you make a decision to sign over money to Jesus, that everything in your life is going to just go A-OK, and it's going to be perfect. And then if you, if you desire a car, you just name it and you claim it, and God's going to give it to you. If you desire a house, you just name it, claim it, God's going to give it to you. Let me, there is nothing further from the truth. This kind of stuff is what wreaks havoc on Christians today. And it's why they live so destroyed in their faith. Because when things don't work out, they believe it's God's fault. Here's the deal. The only thing that God promised all 12 of the disciples was suffering and death. And oh, by the way, in the end, you get to spend eternity with me. So here's the deal. Just because you become a Christian doesn't mean that life gets easier. In many ways, it gets harder. But at the same time, it gets better. You know why? Because now you can live with peace. Now you can live with joy. You don't have to live with this guilt and this shame anymore. Now there is a way to get rid of this stuff rather than just stuffing it and hiding it. So we cannot buy into this peacetime mentality, meaning that, hey, once I follow Jesus, that now, hey, everything's good. I can just sit back and everything's going to be fine. Scripture tells us that when we choose to follow Jesus, we enter into a war. Listen to this. This is a quote by um, John Piper. It says this, life is war, and that's not all it is, but it is always that, and most people don't believe that in their hearts. Most people show by their priorities and casual approach to spiritual things that they don't believe, that they believe we're in a peacetime, not wartime. Very few, few people think that we are in a war that is, a, that is far greater than World War II. And even fewer consider that the casualties in this was not, does not merely lose an arm or an eye or an earthly life, but we lose everything, even their own souls, and enter to a hell of everlasting torment. Until we feel the force of this, we will not pray or live as we ought to. So this is what he's saying. If we were to sum up this quote, if we live in a peacetime mentality, you just read your Bible when it's convenient for you. If you live in a peacetime mentality, you just you read your Bible and you spend time with Jesus when things in your life aren't peaceful. Your relationship with God looks like a 911 phone call. You only I see people come to church only when their life is falling apart. People go to God when their life is falling apart. They they wipe off the dust of their Bible when their life is falling apart. And these are people that live in a peacetime mentality and they don't realize there is this very real spiritual enemy that wants to take us out. But if you live in wartime mentality, you see the Bible as essential for your survival. Hey, this is my food, this is my bread, this is what I need to make it. Because here's the deal. The times when you have convinced yourself that you're doing great and your relationship with good is good is the time that the enemy is working overtime to get you. If you live in a peacetime mentality, you look at church as something you do when it fits your schedule. Hey, when it works for me, I'll go. But if you live in a, war, in a wartime mentality, you look at church as spiritual protection, as family, as life to your soul, as something that we cannot live without, as something that Jesus ultimately died for, and it's important for us to come together. So we've got to live in this very real understanding that we're in a fight, we're in a war, and if we're not preparing ourselves daily, that things are going to go bad. Number two. Even though we fight a very powerful enemy, 
We do not fight that enemy in our own power. So there is a very real enemy that does have power, but we don't have to do it on our own. Notice the words in Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of what? Your might? No, his might. His might. See, it's not good enough for you to just be strong on your own. You need to be strong in the Lord. So the question now remains is, well, how do I do this? How do I prepare for a, a war? How do I prepare for battle? How do I prepare for the evil forces that really are out there? Do I just pray more? Do I just read my Bible more? Is that, that's kind of like the canned response, right, that most people, that most Christians give us. Hey, how are you doing? Oh, man, things actually, they're not, they're not doing well. I'm just going to pray for you. <laughs> it's kind of the canned response that we give. So what do we do when things aren't going well? How, do we, how are we to be strong in the Lord? If we continue reading the passage in Ephesians 6, this is what it says. It says, Therefore, put on every piece, every piece of God's armor, so that you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth. What does that simply mean? Live a life of honesty. Live a life of honesty. Live a life of openness. There is nothing more freeing truth and there is nothing more condemning than living a lie you know why because when you live a lie you have to constantly act and play this part to keep up the lie so usually when you lie you don't have to tell one lie you got to tell about like five thousand lies right to cover the lie that you just lied about to cover the other lie that you just lied about and then you get so mixed in the story that you're like i don't even know it's true anymore so put on the belt of truth in the body armor of god's righteousness this is so important meaning that hey rest in the fact that god like as i talked about earlier that god and his mercy and his righteousness saved you not because of you but because of his son not because you were good but because he was good put on the shoes of peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared In addition to all these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows. Listen, it is hard to have faith when you're doing it by yourself. When you've got all these things of life, we all know this, all these arrows that are coming at us. Man, maybe it's debt. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's stress. I don't know if I'm going to have my job tomorrow or whatever. Maybe it's marriage. Maybe it's kids. Maybe it's family. Maybe it's a strained relationship. Whatever it is, maybe it's a sinful desire When you have all these arrows coming after you, if it's just you, it's going to be hard to keep the faith. Then put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So here's the deal. How are we to ever do any of this if we don't know what the word of God says? We don't know. Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. I'm reading this short little book right now. It's literally probably 60 pages. It's by a guy named Brother Lawrence. He doesn't even have a last name. Okay, it's just He was so cool. He, that was his name, Brother Lawrence. And the book is simply practicing the presence. And this is what it's simply all about. He wasn't a pastor. He wasn't a theologian. He wasn't some kind of scholar. He, wasn't, he had nothing to do with ministry. Well, he did in his own kind of way. He was a cook. He was a cook, 
And the whole story is basically recounting his life and how he pursued Jesus. And this is what he says. In every circumstance that I had, I took it as an opportunity to pursue Jesus. So it's like, man, when I was chopping tomatoes, I'm praying. And so here's the deal. My wife and I were talking about this the other day. To put on this armor, to be prepared to fight against the schemes of the enemy and, and, the, and Satan and all these things, it does not have to be like, man, I got to go lock myself in a room, turn on worship music and open the Bible and I got to read for an hour. I mean, if that's what floats your boat and that's what works for you, by all means, do it. But here's the deal. What, it, what would it look like if we just learned to integrate our life with the things of the Spirit? So, so maybe you work and you work a busy schedule and you say, man, I just don't have time. You do drive there. So man, pop in some headphones. Listen to the Bible. If that's the only way that you could do it, listen to it. We can make time all throughout our life. It doesn't have to be like this separate life of I spend time with Jesus here and then I live my life over here. What would it look like if it was all integrated as one? You got some downtime at work, you're praying. And God, I've got some thoughts going on in my mind. I've been battling these for a day or two. And then maybe you can't get rid of them on your own. So what do you do? This is the importance of being a part of a life group or going through the next step and meeting different people. You can, now you know people. Now you can pick up the phone and say, hey, this is what's going on in my mind. This is the battle. What do I do? And then number three, to wrap it all up, never forget, never forget that we already know the outcome of this war. I don't know if you've checked the back of the book, but we win. <laughs> we win. So, so, so here's the deal. Satan has already been defeated at the cross, at the resurrection. So we fight because it's a very real battle, but we can fight knowing that we're a child of God and knowing in the end, if we keep the faith, we're going to win. Here's the deal. We're not fighting for victory. We fight from victory. Jesus has already won it. He's already won for us, for me, for you. So I know that this is somewhat of a different message than we usually um, preach. But I want you to be very aware. The moment that you decide that you don't need some of these essentials is the moment that you choose to coast and the moment that all these evil forces around you may not be quick, it may be slow, it may be subtle, but they will destroy you if we're not aware of them. Listen, this is why, you know, being a part of a healthy church is important. This is why on your own, spending time with Jesus is important. This is why getting involved in a life group with other people, because here's the thing, you're not as smart as you think you are. <laughs> you're not as smart as you think you are. You, you, if there's certain things in your life that you could fix that are still broken, you would have fixed them already. And the reason you can't is because it's the whole reason that God creates people. Hey, get around somebody else. The thing that I learned a few years ago, um, as a young man, you struggle with pride, right? You think you, you got it all under control. I know everything. And you would never say that verbally, like, I know everything. But the way that you act and live your life kind of presents this, right? One of the greatest things I did a few years ago was literally just be able to submit my life to some other men and be like, look, I just need to sit underneath you. I've tried for a long time doing it on my own. And the truth is, I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) I don't know what I'm doing. Help. Help. 
listen, that's not weakness, that's strength. Because now you're coming to the, the point of humility of now God's going to work something in your life. He's going to do something. This is why groups are so important. This is why next step is so important. It gives you an opportunity to meet godly believers that love Jesus and want to do life together. And ultimately, at the end of the day, when you have that phone call that you get that you never expected and your world gets shattered and you don't know what to do, and you got people that you can go to, and it's not just some friend that's going to give you some kind of worldly advice. You know, it's not some friend that's just going to say, hey, man, uh, I don't know what to do, bro. Uh, I don't know. Let's go have a beer together. <laughs> that's not what you need in that moment. You need sound truth. People that are going to love you, people that are going to point you in the right direction and say, you know what, I don't, I don't have all the answers, man, but I do know Jesus, and we can pray about this, and we can war through this, and I'll fight together with you in this situation. I'll carry this burden with you. I'll help you, and we'll get there together. Get there together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. God, we know that there is a very real enemy, God, that wants to destroy us. God, that has every intention of robbing our joy, of stealing our peace. God, I pray that this morning, God, wherever we're at in our life, God, maybe some of us are at that point where, God, he has taken joy from us. He has taken peace from us. He has taken all those things. God, I pray that today that you would restore those things. God, even as David prayed in Psalms 51 after after he committed adultery, he said, God, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. God, I pray for many in here today that that's what you would do. God, if they've been walking with you for a long time, and God, maybe that joy has just been swept out from underneath them. God, I pray that you would restore that joy when they first came to know you. God, I pray for those in here today, God, that don't know you. God, they're swimming in guilt. They're swimming in shame. They're dealing with maybe just emptiness, depression, guilt. God, I pray that today that you would save them. God, I pray that today it'd be like God going into a dark room and just flipping on a light switch. God, for the first time, God, it would make sense for them. God, that you're not trying to take something away from them, but God, that you're trying to give something to them. And that's life and that's peace, salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.